1: You're listening to Drifter Sympathy on Feral Audio. To support this podcast and hear more of Emil's music, go to holysons.bandcamp.com Feral
2: Audio
3: When Sebado's single for Soul and Fire came out, I think I probably rushed down to buy the import CD, which came with this compilation of all their pre show tapes that they would play to introduce the band sarcastically, which showed this other side of a band that not only wasn't afraid to humiliate themselves, but seemed to be just asking for it. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. And going to see them live scarred me because I expected that kind of ruthless honesty from any artist from that point on. I just thought it was entertaining to see people have total emotional breakdowns on stage. I can look back now and understand that the only people I really cared about artistically were people who were clearly reticent about performing for me. They didn't want me to like them, and that's what I needed to trust them. This was part of just the basic atmosphere of underground music in the 80s. And then you think about now and how everything is about glad-handing we've normalized this atmosphere to a point where trust actually isn't a relevant factor anymore whereas before trust created a whole paradigm between the artist and the listener where the artist could get completely outrageous and people would go with them go with them go with them go with them go with them, go with them go unfortunately now outrageousness is just merely a marketing scheme like lawlessness is just someone like making a slightly glitchier beat There was a moment when things were formless and you didn't have blueprints in front of you, you didn't have references in front of you. People were just blasting forth out of small towns without knowing at all how they'd be received. So when there's no carrot dangling in front of you at all, all of a sudden you're kind of free to step back and just be yourself, which means that lawlessness doesn't actually have a shape at all and that all previous notions of form and technique can be completely disregarded. So right when I'm putting all this together in my mind in high school, this came blasting out of the boombox off Sebado's tape.
0: In the tradition of Daniel Johnston, under a cloud of hiss, Sebado! It's not bullshit, it's Sebado!
3: So I went right back to the same store and bought this record called It's Spooky by Daniel Johnston and Jad Fair, Took it into high school, went to jazz band, and put it on a boombox. I made people listen to it, and you can't imagine their faces when they heard this shit. Yeah. at the very worst, they just thought this is absolutely useless, then you still have to ask yourself, why would someone make useless music? And then you're kind of starting to go down the right road. 50% of this music may have been done in defensive stances, like people who knew they were the loser and wanted to twist the knife back into all the people that had wronged them. But then also... There's an aggressive element that you have to remember This is not... The the textbooks wrote down that this is the birth of emo music and all this bullshit That's wrong That has nothing to do with anything There was a very intense aggressive element To like knowing that the world was never going to accept you And knowing that the world was never going to give a shit about anything you were doing So you cut it off at the pass you know you're unattractive to them so you amp it up and you're like fuck you too and skateboarding is a saying it's like this is made by skateboarders for skateboarders it's incredibly exclusive if you think about it nobody wants to allow an outsider in they don't want someone making or manufacturing something for them who doesn't know what the fuck they're doing and doesn't care it's just a basic ethic but in skateboarding it's allowed to be exclusive in music you're not supposed to be like that anymore but that's the way it was
0: i thirsty more Pedal hopping like a dinosaur
3: It must have been 93 or so My buddy was a WXYC DJ and he invited me down To play my songs on the air And He was like have you heard this Truman's Water record And I'm like No Should I And he puts it on and I just think to myself Uh oh Uh oh First reaction is, shit, there are good kids out there that know how to imitate being totally insane. Like, we all love the icons of insanity in the history of music. And, like, if you know how to hit that frequency because you're a fan of insanity, this is a new corner. We're all turning this together. We're all fans of these cult records. But, like, now you figured out how to make that sound too? Fast forward like almost 10 years, and I'm in Portland, Oregon, somewhere I never, ever thought I would live, and I ended up over at this house for uh, New Year's. We're setting off fireworks in the middle of the road, and it's all the guys from Truman's Water who eventually just become like my best friends. And they were there before me They understood all the stuff way before me So they start kind of hipping me to all the beef heart records And, and things that I should have been listening to the whole fucking time Then you see the through line Then you get it And I call these motherfuckers the terrorists, the terrorists. The terrorists. Go back So the Truman's Water guys start matter-of-factly just saying, like, well, you know the best band in the world is the Sun City Girls. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, I've been living in a cave. I got a lot of catching up to do. So I end up becoming a total devotee to this band, a group of people that just weren't really ever going to be assimilated and knew it. So they took the throne and they just twisted the knife into everybody, 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 everybody. To take it. To bookbind the opposition. To erase all that was, which was not. And to capitalize the period which comes after it. To erase the future before it bleeds to ink. To pound the eyeball. 98.6 is death. You are not alive. To pound the eyeball. To keep wounds open. What was apparently unknown to the biographers of great explorers was the huge boredom which occurred day and night, almost uninterrupted. To pound the eyeball, 98.6 is death. You are not alive. certain people that you just have no problem with saying that they're the greatest at what they do and using the flexibility of being unseen the Sun City Girls basically moved around everybody and found new opportunities to be completely free you could talk all day long about people making money and the entire shiny carnival that is capitalism that celebrates mediocrity in every segment of entertainment But these people never lived on that planet and they were immune to its forces. wanted you to like their music. They may not have been able to play their instruments very well, but they actually did want you to sing along. along, along, along. The Sun City Girls were going to do something that nobody had ever done before. They were going to tell you exactly how it was. The Beatles couldn't do it because they were stuck up there on stage trying to say, thank you girl, we love you girl, and I love you too. There's nothing wrong with that, but the art was being partially dictated by the circumstance. Now, when you get outside of circumstance and you're just alone, you can say whatever you want. So you better do it if you have the chance. The world you live in was
4: swallowed by yours truly in a capsule when I was two years old, washed down with a bucket of quicksand. You want to see if you got dandruff? Then shake your head over Johnny Cash. And that's the way it is. Case closed. Sentenced to death. It's not elitist. It's the original. How can it be
3: elitist if it's the original of the aboriginal? The
4: aboriginal. The aboriginal.
3: always been a hallmark of the punk spirit to cut him off at the pass to know that there's no rewards for you there's nobody coming clapping hands so you get the freedom that nobody else gets you, barry manilow can't like strip down naked like gg G. allen and just scream with the microphone in his mouth you can only do that when you don't think anybody's coming to the show So for kids like me who are listening to Hardcore and thinking, Jesus Christ, these people are so far ahead of the game. By the time you go back and discover Beefheart, which is 20, 30 years before... There's so much more deconstruction, hybridization, and, and just bizarre interests getting cauldroned into this shit, that there's just no reason to go back and listen to normal music. It's just completely uninteresting, and the people who are interested by it, they're going to put us in serious trouble.
4: Trouble, trouble. The flow is the task above today. There is no other way. You gotta trust
0: us when you need a friend to
4: find us. You gotta look within. You gotta trust us. You gotta trust us. Before you tame the dust Before you tame the dust You gotta see it before you see it You gotta be it before
0: you be it. You gotta see it before
3: It's hard to even approximate Captain Beefheart's contribution to the terrorist movement. Some would say it wouldn't even exist without him. I read somewhere once that his mission was to destroy the robotic infrastructure inside of the consumer culture that was reinforced by the 4 4 rhythm. That the basic, like, boom, 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 rhythm is part of the evil structure that's just driving people to chew their food faster and get back to work. work, 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 work. Beefheart was a bit of an evil guru himself, often mistreating the band and wringing them into whatever shape he thought was a true avant-garde, authentic expression of his will. So his superfans are left with an equation to wrestle with, Which is that if he couldn't really play any of these instruments, and he's singing out loud how the parts supposedly go, and the band has to rewrite all this material and find a way to express it in a palatable way, then part of this legendary genius definitely belongs to the band. And I don't think he really wanted to share that limelight. This really opens up a fascinating question that probably can't be answered here, but... What are you willing to go through to further the course of evolution? Beefheart himself said he was born as a genius. He was pretty consistent about that opinion. But it's the band that have to make the sacrifices necessary in their own moral structure... They weren't allowed to leave their locked-down compound. They were given a cup full of soybeans for food daily, and they were choked against the wall while figures were yelled at them that they needed to learn. There are a lot of fetishists out there that want to separate art from the artist, But isn't it more interesting to actually wrestle with the complexity of what it takes sometimes to make a trout mass replica?
1: to support Drifter sympathy. You can visit distilled.com and get a 20% discount off of designer clothing and jeans. Distilled offers luxury-grade denim at an affordable price, utilizing the same fabrics, factories, and washhouses as the best-known brands and designers while skipping the markups and middlemen. Just go to distilled.com and use the promo code EMIL to get 20% off your first pair. That's D-S-T-L-D.com with the promo code E-M-I-L. Second way to support Drifter Sympathy is to visit holysons.bandcamp.com and buy any episode of Drifter Sympathy or Emil's music. Thanks for your support.
3: Finally Sun City Girls came down to Portland, Oregon. It was right before their drummer got sick with cancer So we didn't know, but we only had a few times to see him left I walked in and immediately got caught in a massive cloud of pot smoke And this older lady looked very impaired So I'm like, can I hit your, your joint? And she's like, please, please take it the show hasn't started yet so i'm pretty excited about this i'm like rush up to the front row and there's truman's water alongside this classic portland band called the bugs and everybody looks so excited like we're finally children again like we're finally so excited about something or someone that can bring us something we can't get anywhere else So Alan Bishop comes out and turns his hat backwards and sits down in a chair. And Rick Bishop comes out and slowly starts strumming out these beautiful chords for The Look of Love by Burt Bacharach. Not something that you would plan to see by kings of, like, adversarial punk music. But as soon as they start doing it, it's exactly what you want and need in your life. Of course, the next song, they just blast into, like, Spanish hardcore, but The Look of Love set something congruent for me. Like, I was working on this record, Decline of the West, and I wanted to take the things that people didn't want to like, and I wanted to put it in front of their face in a way that they couldn't refuse it. They instantly gave me the permission slip that I had been needing to liberate any kind of music from any time and just make it my own. So without them, I don't see how Grails or Lilacs Champagne could have ever even got off the ground. Of this stuff you're listening to is right around 1992, and things were just changing really, really fast. Like, no one could even document it, it was changing so fast. And you can read all the books you want, you can watch all this fucking stupid documentaries about the year Punk broke or whatever. But those people are, are really interested in success, those people are interested in who made money. Well, that's not what was actually going on on the streets that had nothing to do with what we were doing so don't get caught up in the stupid side of history man because it's just gonna guide you in the direction of all the same old mistakes in ways 1992 was about the closest a kid like me could feel like they were in 1968 there was a lot of similarities it sounds lofty but the industry was crashing against culture in some similar ways In the 60s, nobody really saw the pitfalls that were coming, so they had a much better excuse to be naive. It's almost shocking that anyone would have fought against the flow. That's probably why they were called the mothers of invention.
0: we
4: I can't believe you are sad.
3: doing a podcast with john from the mountain goats the other day and i asked him something or other about how he got into lo-fi methodologies and he went straight to an anecdote about hearing you're living all over me and hearing "Polito" by lou barlow and in a way i was shocked at the simplicity and the basic communion that we were all just hearing this shit and reacting and going home just like you know synth pop in britain when they saw craftwork, they went home and formed bands it's just that simple sometimes sometimes it's that dumb. That, dumb, that, dumb, that, dumb, that dumb as the 90s opened up the seven inch became more important than ever and you could do a whole podcast on just the value of the seven inch alone and how fast information traveled from town to town just on this quick six minute length side Coincidentally, when the 7-inch was king, Lou Barlow was at the height of his prolific power. And he was kind of showing by example that you could take any piece of the day, being tired or having a headache or jacking off too much, and you could make entire universes of sound about that one microscopic state of mind. These are all just new forms of deconstruction, extrapolation, and terrorism just branching out in every direction because everybody's realizing at the same time that they're free to do anything. It doesn't matter. Nobody's really watching them. I'd
2: like to be Superman, but you're standing on my chair. You gave me all I had, but still I call. spoiled, addicted to control, denied possession till it finally stole my
3: out of Dinosaur Jr. into a very foul mood that assisted him in writing a lot of his greatest stuff, Lou Barlow finds a fellow terrorist, Eric Gaffney, and Eric brings such an intense amount of energy and kind of black magic into the band that for a second, before Nirvana comes along and the whole industry gets rerouted by MTV into a really big, boring mess... These two guys seem like they're going to just burn down the whole fucking house together. After Eric Gaffney left the band, coincidentally, there was a sea change in underground music. And he marks like the last person that I ever felt was actually mysterious in music. He disappeared, and it felt like he was the Skip Spence of our generation. Since that period, I've always felt there's something lacking, and I really miss the feeling of the tone of someone's voice betraying that They may not be well, you're not really sure where they were coming from. guys are setting this precedent that almost nobody can match, besides Sun City Girls at the time, this level of total freedom. And they invite this 18-year-old kid into the band. This kid, Jason Lowenstein, was known as kind of a barefoot drummer around town in local hardcore bands in Massachusetts. So out of a wager of total democracy, they set up a Voltron of three songwriters that can switch instruments and support each other in any genre they want to go in. And magically, the new kid shows up and knocks it out of the park on his first try. Uh, 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 ¶¶
4: mind I turn my back, the pinkish lung that turns so black.
3: Certainly there were some stoned, meandering, home-recorded records in the 60s and 70s that would become known for setting the bar for this kind of free-atmosphere, stream-of-consciousness style. But I don't really reach for records by the Holy Modal Rounders, or there's an obscure band called Armpit that's playing underneath me right now. Maybe just because they weren't setting out to write any sort of classic songs, so nothing sticks with you too much. It's ironic that sober people like Frank Zappa actually turned out some of the better music concrete, rambling, fucked up stream of consciousness recordings. But someone who really deserves a second look is David Allen from Gong. Originally, I would have assumed this is some kind of, like, nerd elf king of dork Prague or something. But I think when you take away a lot of the sort of hippie colorations of his silliness, and you go back to the very beginning of their sort of mission statement, you'll get presented with a really fascinating nexus point of total freedom, kind of musicological power, and conceptual chaos, like... Down at the core of this guy and his vision Was a kind of strange violence and playfulness That if it hits you in the right mood It's actually kind of frightening,
0: My father, and oh. you could kill my son, oh. you could kill my chief.
3: back now, this guy's career could only be rivaled by a few people maybe like John Cale or somebody David Bowie apparently said that he essentially invented the glam rock impetus. Nina Simone said he was the only white guy whose psychedelia she could stomach he's an Australian guy blasts into the UK and kicks off the whole Canterbury scene by living with Robert Wyatt's mom when Robert Wyatt's fourteen and just takes him in. Kevin Ayers from The Soft Machine, who David Allen started too, says that he was just out of high school and this exotic person said, Fuck this, fuck that, smoke pot, read this. It was like this anarchist just hit town and kickstarted like five genres. Then he gets kicked out of the U.K. because his visa's fucked up, goes out to the famous writer Robert Graves' house in Majorca, drops acid, sees his entire life mapped out before him, sneaks back into the U.K. to improvise music for William Burroughs' theatrical performances, hanging out with Terry Riley, getting fucked up with Hendrix, and just getting gong back together whenever he feels like it. You'd think this guy would be a little bit more well-known. It's Gilly Smythe, his partner in crime. She's definitely just as far out as he is. You can see that in her solo record Mother. She knows how to ride this really thin tightrope of just insanity with him where they kind of play with contradiction and danger. One of the greatest stories about David Allen has to do with Sherman Hemsley from The Jeffersons a well-documented Prague fan he was a huge gentle giant fan he danced to nectar on the jeffersons and wore a nectar shirt on the second season of saturday night live when he hosted so sherman hemsley becomes obsessed with gong won't stop calling david allen but david allen has no idea what the jeffersons are because he lives in spain and he doesn't have a tv guy just kept saying he was such a huge fan that he's gonna fly him out and put flying teapots which is one of the signifiers of their weird myth down the sunset strip in LA so David Allen's like if you're so successful just fly me in from LA I'm just about to go to Jamaica with my new girlfriend Suddenly he's in Sherman Hemsley's like multi-level layer where each level of his house has a freebase crack depot and they have an LSD lab in his basement helmed by two Puerto Ricans that are ultra paranoid. Paranoid, paranoid. Sherman brings him upstairs and says, I want to show you the flying teapot room where they have David Allen's record on a tape loop running over and over. With three completely naked southern girls, high and barely able to walk. After guiding him to his bedroom, which is just a mattress on the floor, David and his girlfriend wake up to a morning of Jefferson's episodes. And Sherman takes him off to a Hollywood PR meeting where they're talking about trying to set up the teapot billboards on the Sunset Strip. And David Allen looked at the PR people and says, these were literally the cheesiest, most nasty people I'd ever seen in my life. I liked Sherman a lot. I just had a lot of trouble with all the people around him. going to go out with a curveball addition to the terrorist genre tomorrow's gift a german krautrock band that was previously cutting like meandering hippy dippy stuff decided to just to throw the hammer down and freak out on their second record totally instrumental tracks but it just has the right spirit spirit, spirit.